Hello and welcome to episode 113 of the Mark and Me podcast. As always, I'm your host Mark. Joining me on today's episode is the film director Brandon Cronenberg. Yes, the son of David. This guy is responsible for directing easily, at this moment, the film of the year for me, Possessor. It is fucked up, it's mental, but it's awesome and everything you'd expect from someone with the surname Cronenberg. This film is unbelievable, but I'm never going to sit here and ruin it for you. I'm not going to tell you anything about it. I'm not going to tell you any of the twists or anything. I want it to be spoiler free, but I urge you all to go out and check this out. This film is unbelievable and you will not regret it. And today we have the opportunity to sit down, talk all about the film, all about filmmaking, influences and everything you expect from the Mark and Me podcast. So that interview with Brandon is coming up very, very shortly. But in true typical Mark and Me fashion, on the last episode, I was joined by Jim Crutt. We got to talk all about Dawn of the Dead. The episode did really, really well, and it was so good to see the response. And again, thanks to everyone that tuned in. But today's all about Possessor. I can't big this film up enough, but what I want to do now is get straight to the interview. So here's me and Brandon talking all things movies. Thanks for joining me today on the Mark and Me podcast. My pleasure. So first of all, what I wanted to know is when you were growing up, what was that kind of first insight to film that made you fall in love with movies were there a certain type of genre or a certain movie you watched that made you then realize you wanted a career in film uh no i didn't come to film really until later on when i was in my 20s i was sort of interested in uh possibly writing you know i read a lot uh, growing up and, and i was interested in visual art and i was doing some illustrations and playing in bands um everything except film kind of, but at, at a certain <laughs> at a certain point I felt I needed to focus uh, on one thing and film was a, was a way to kind of combine all of those things. You get to still enjoy writing and, and visual art and, and music, but focus on one medium. So even though it's a bit late, you said in your 20s, what was it then that triggered it then? Was it just a case that you just thought this is something I just want to completely delve into? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I was just realizing I was too scattered and, and I wanted to kind of uh, commit to something and, and focus on, on something for my life. And then obviously making films, I know that in, God, it's nearly a decade now, uh, you're making short films, stuff like Broken Tulips and The Camera and Christopher Merck. Now those short films, was that enough to give you enough confidence that you knew you could hopefully then go on and direct big films yourself? Or was that something you just wanted to try and get into to see how it would be? I mean, <laughs> So I went to film school. I did four years at film school here yeah. in Toronto. And uh, I mean, I, w- I was confident once I did that, that, that I wanted to continue on and make films. But first of all, you have to learn to do that in shorts or a kind of more risk-free way of doing that. And you also have to be able to demonstrate that you're capable of making a film. That's, that's always the hard thing for a director. When you haven't done it, how do you convince people that you can do it and, uh, and that they should finance your movies? So short films are a good way to kind of show that you have the basics. And what was your kind of biggest learning experience when doing these shorts? Was it that you'd need such a, to be doing it on such a bigger scale moving forward? Uh, I mean, it was all, it was all learning experience. I mean, you, there, you can learn a lot theoretically about filmmaking, either in film school or just from online tutorials. I mean, you don't really need to go to film school to, to, to learn how to make movies. Uh, but you do have to 
generally just learn how to do it through doing it and, and they're all every aspect of the process from writing it to to the final film is something that you can only track as you do it more and more and start to see how uh, the ripple effect works how, how the things that you do at the start of the process end up at the end of the process and, and that's kind of a, a hands-on thing and an experience thing and then obviously your debut film which was on a bigger scale not just a short antiviral um what was your kind of thought process going into that film so that's not a short film that's not like a music video or anything like that. that's a big big jump for yourself was it quite um nerve-wracking or was it were you quite confident going into that after film school I mean, it's all nerve. It's all nerve-wracking <laughs> to to a certain degree. It, it definitely uh, has never been the case that I, I feel absolutely certain that I know what I'm doing, even even now. But uh, in some ways, I mean, a feature film is just a short film, except longer. You know, mm-hmm. that's sort of a stupid way of looking at it. But in terms of the process, it it really is like that. I mean, you're doing all of the same things that you're doing in a short film, you're just doing them for a longer period of time. The only real difference uh, is that you have to track for a longer narrative, the, the different beats, and then uh, be more aware of where you are in the story and uh, how each individual scene fits into, you know, 90 minutes rather than five minutes. And I'm sure you get this question a lot, but it's something that's playing on my mind. Do you feel that there's a unfair advantage to you with having such a famous father do you think people are always going to compare you to his work or is it something that you've just kind of dealt with while growing up honestly i do my best to just not take that into consideration when when i'm working because otherwise i would just be making movies in the context of someone else's career and and it would be all about my very trivial relationship with <laughs> with my reputation and, and my father's work so um uh, I really am just making movies that are honest to my own interests and, and creative impulses and uh, leave that to other people to decide whether it's important. I um, interviewed recently John Carpenter's son and I was saying to myself, I wonder if you'd sit there and watch your dad's films and then go and get advice from him or kind of run ideas past him. Is that something you do or do you kind of draw a line and keep it so you've got your own separate kind of view and stance on your own work? I mean, I just don't really have that kind of perspective on his work. It's not, I mean, it's, uh, I'm too close to him and to that stuff to, to really watch his films as though they're normal films and, and to take inspiration the way that people normally mean that. Yeah, that's fair. And let's talk about your most recent film, so Possessor. Now, the reviews I've seen online and obviously now that we've got the streaming service and stuff, but with IMDb, it's absolutely glowing. I was reading it again today and everyone is absolutely loving your work and people are really getting on board. Is it really nice to see all this and such a great response from this film already? Uh, of course, it's fantastic to get, <laughs> to get a good response. I mean, it, you know, it took me eight years to get the film made. It was, it was an eight-year development process. It really took a long time to get it off the ground. And so uh, to be able to even just have finished the film <laughs> and for it to exist is uh, really a thrill for me and uh, the fact that people seem to like it is especially exciting. And what was it that delayed or took so long to get this? Was it the fact of trying to finance the film? Is that what it was? It was mostly that, yeah. I mean, there was an initial period of trying to figure out what I was going to do next because I didn't have a film career when I made Antiviral. I'd done a few shorts. 
but it took me essentially seven years to get to the point where I could make a feature and I was completely focused on that. So I didn't have other films in development. I didn't have other, you know, people looking to finance my other films. Uh, so I had to kind of start from scratch. That took a little bit of time. And then it was just, uh, again, the normal independent film challenges, trying to get financing and, and actors and so on. One of my favorite things about film, I'm not a director myself, but I have so much respect is the use of practical effects. Now, watching this film, that must be something that you're very passionate about because I read that the whole, and I won't give any spoilers here, but the, the kind of melting and reforming of the body, the whole lot was done with 100% practical effects with no CGI. And I, that's quite hard to believe when you see it on screen. Uh, well, thank you. Uh, yeah, it's <laughs> incredible. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I, I think practical effects are, first of all, exciting to me because they have a certain weight and a certain texture to them on screen. Uh, I, I'm not against CGI. I, I think no. it had, there's a place for it. Uh, it you know, there's no wrong way to, to approach effects. But uh, to me, practical effects have this kind of tactile quality to them. And, and if you at least start from a, a practical place and touch them up with CGI or enhance them that way, I think you're getting more... Uh, impact on screen uh, when when that's possible, um, but the other thing is that it's a, it's a kind of process with practical effects. I mean, this, uh, the, those sequences uh, uh, were really made in collaboration with my cinematographer Kareem Hussein and and uh, my effects artist Dan Martin, um, yeah. and so as we worked together on, on the the various tricks that on the makeup effects side and on the camera effects side. Uh, there were things that we stumbled on, especially with Kareem, because uh, he lived down the street from me in Toronto for you know years as we were developing the film, and we spent a lot of time just in his living room playing with uh, projector feedback and various gels and lenses and anything that we could do to deform the image. And when you do that and you're working in a hands-on way, there are all these happy accidents where you just stumble onto something that looks great and that veers you off in another direction that you weren't expecting uh, to go in. And that's a process that I don't think I would get with, with digital, especially because I'm not a, a VFX artist. No. Um, so there's a little bit of CGI in the film in terms of uh, some cleanup and some set enhancement and the a VR office obviously was, was fully digital. With yeah. that kind of process, you're just giving someone your thoughts and then they're showing you things, uh, but you're not standing there with a flashlight and a gel flaring the lens and trying to uh, figure out the ways that you can make the film look look different. I think what I'm looking forward to when this obviously comes out for people to buy and be able to stream is people's reactions to, which I would say one of the most iconic sex scenes in cinema. I thought it was unbelievable the way it was done. Like you just talked about your cinematographer and your digital effects guy and stuff, those guys need the biggest pat on the back ever. It's flawless. Oh, thank you. <laughs> uh, yeah, they deserve huge, huge credit for, for that. And also my editor, Matt Hannum. I mean, uh, yeah. we spent a lot of time together working on the, the cutting language of the film. And um, he was also a major part of that. And with this film being released, is this the, I've seen a bit of speculation online, but is this the full final cut version that you do? It's not like in a year's time we might get like a director's cut. Is this the full version that you want to be put out there? Yeah, it's the full version of the film. It's, it's a director's cut. The only, uh, it's, a, it's a question 
of which territory it's coming out in. In some yeah. in the U.S., for instance, there's the uncut version, and then there also is a cut version uh, that was cut to achieve an R rating in the U.S. So in some territories, there'll be two versions, and one of them is cut. But the uh, uncut version, which is, I think is the only one coming out in the U.K., is is the director's cut. And I, I was lucky to have a lot of support on the film, and, and I didn't really have to lose anything. That's awesome. That's quite rare nowadays. I've seen. I speak to a lot of directors that get to a point and in the end they just have to accept that these bits have to be cut and they won't get their final version out there. So to know you've got that is quite a privilege, isn't it? Uh, absolutely. Uh, I'm not even sure how that, how that worked out, but <laughs> I, I think every, part, partly uh, I know my producers fairly well, they're friends. And so there, there was a lot of support for them, I think in a way that you might not get if you were making yeah. a, a bigger film with like a, a studio or something like that. Um, and then Neon are a, a really cool distributor and, and Wellgo in the US that were driving uh, that initial release um, and, and pushing for the uncut version to be the, the kind of lead version there. That's awesome. It's really good. It means I don't have to buy another Blu-ray in a few years' time. It's the one that is always good. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I promise I won't, I won't drop any sort of special editions on you, but you know. And with the design work, especially like the machinery, is that something that you had full hands-on control of? Is that something that you were doing as a concept or did you work with someone else on that? Because again, it's, it's iconic and I think it looks stunning and it's something that I was you know, studying while watching it. I was like, God, look how much work's gone into that. I mean, it's always a collaboration with every yeah. aspect of film. That's the thing. I mean, you talk about the director being the author of the film and I am in probably an obnoxious nitpicky way involved in all of those things. But at the same time, it's also very much the work of the department heads. And, um, so Rupert Lazarus was our, uh, production designer and there was, you know, of course a lengthy conversation about, uh, about how all that machinery would work. Um, I did end up in that conversation, I think for the, mask itself the the sci-fi helmet that she wears i was driving it in sort of the wrong direction initially with those conversations because i was looking at uh prototypes for uh for brain control like brain gate and and these kinds of actual real world scientific uh experiments that have a very rough looking quality to them it's sort of visually very mundane and initially i was looking to do something more realistic but it just wasn't quite getting there and i I felt that that mask needed to be a kind of central visual uh point for the film Um, so i I ended up late in the process kind of doing essentially drawing it and then working with a concept artist to render it in a way where they they could build it and taking it in a, a sort of different direction fascinating and now that the film's obviously going to be released, what's next for you? Have you already planned on, obviously, with the whole lockdown and with the COVID, everything's kind of put on hold and the cinema's not showing films, but have you already got ideas about what you want to do next? Yeah, there are two films uh, that are fairly far along in development that I've been working on. Uh, one's called Infinity Pool, which is a kind of tourist resort satire with some sci-fi horror elements. Nice. And the other is a, a trippy space horror movie called Dragon. Um, they're both written and like <laughs> fairly close to going. So hopefully uh, I'll be able to make them back to back soon. And something I ask everyone, it doesn't matter who they are on this podcast. Um, I get a lot of young studying filmmakers that listen to the podcast and I'd like to know what advice you'd give them for 
standing out above everyone else at the moment in a world that's got so many channels with YouTube and Instagram? But how do you think is a good way to get your work seen at the moment for an upcoming filmmaker? I mean, what, what I would suggest is to focus on ideas and having ideas that stand out because there are a lot of people who are technically very competent right now. And as you say, people put out uh, short films all the time, but very often you can see that they're essentially trying to emulate like a Hollywood blockbuster or, or something yeah. or a Tarantino film. And, and you feel like they are sort of, uh, you know, emulating those yeah. productions but with less money and they don't have the resources and and it's also someone else's mode that they're operating in but there is an enormous dearth of ideas in the film industry and so if, if you're coming up with clever ideas if there's something that really uh is interesting conceptually i think that's worth more than just showing that you can do something that looks relatively polished because you're never going to when you're starting out and making shorts impress people by how much money you're putting into your film you're yeah. never going to impress them by doing something relatively polished um the other thing i would say is it's useful to make films that are complete films i i know some people who've gained some viral success doing trailers for you know fan trailers and occasionally that works out for people if it's if it's yeah. Uh, I, I know some of those end up being adapted into projects, but I also know sometimes those filmmakers have trouble because they aren't demonstrating that they can do actual scenes and they aren't demonstrating that they can work with actors. And so they get this attention, but they don't necessarily get uh, film deals out of them. So I think having a complete film that you can execute very well, regardless of the resources available to you uh, with some interesting ideas behind it that you could then say, uh, play at film festivals and, and get a little bit of uh, momentum behind them. That's probably a useful approach, maybe. Definitely, um, that's great advice. But there's no one right way to do it. You know, that's the no, thing no. you kind of have to. <laughs> that, that advice might work for some people, but not other people. And it, there's no there's no clear path for everybody. I want to thank you for your time today for coming on the podcast. Um, I'm really looking forward to kind of seeing the response that people will then get to see this and buy it and invest in it. And I'm sure this will be a, a huge point in your career that you can then build upon. And I just want to say um, it's an absolute pleasure to speak to you and good luck with the rest of the interviews you've got on today. Oh, likewise, man. Thanks for having me on. So there it is. There's my interview with me and Brandon. What an interesting guy, someone that's got a huge career ahead of him. And considering this is his first full, full-length feature, oh my God, it's unbelievable. I'm not going to sit here and keep going on. You just need to go and check this film out yourself. You will not regret it. It's going to blow your absolute mind and you'll be thinking about it for weeks after seeing it. It is really one of those films that you just take ages to digest. And it, oh God, it's just incredible. Go and do it. Just stop now listening to this and go and check out Possessor. You will not regret it. Then tweet me or Facebook me and let me know what you think. A huge, huge thank you for Brandon for coming on the show. Honestly, it means the world to me. Thanks again to you guys who have tuned in and listened to the podcast throughout the year. As we go into 2021, I'm going to try and do even more episodes this year than I have this year. 
and easily this time I think you've got about 40 episodes it's been nearly one a week some weeks you've had two or three and it's been full on but I have no desire to take my foot off the gas which means loads and loads of more episodes for you guys I urge you all please to jump on markandme.com on there there's links to my Facebook my Instagram my Twitter but also my email and also on there if you check out my Patreon page you can sign up and support the podcast it really does need your support. I don't make any money off this podcast, but all the money goes directly back into the podcast, allowing me to travel the country or screen and do a number of interviews, which means loads more episodes for you guys at home. I offer loads of prizes and loads of incentives, so please, if you can spare as little as a pound a month, it goes a long way for this podcast. I'll be back again in about a week's time with a brand new episode and there's so much happening with Mark and me. I can't wait to bring you loads more artists. There's going to be a whole series two of that, so five more artists, which I can't wait. There's some more directors, some actors, musicians, bands. There's loads coming up. So thanks again for all your support and I'll be back in a week's time with a brand new episode. So until then, take care and I'll speak to you all soon.
world that you need is wrapped in gold silver sleeves left beneath christmas trees in the snow and i will take you and leave you Watching spirals of white softly flow over your eyelids, and all you did will wait until the point.